Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Micah, chapters 4, 5, and 6, selected verses. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all of your strongholds. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's word. Uh, Thanks, Susan. Uh, Good morning. My name is Ruben, and I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We continue a series this morning through the Minor Prophets, uh, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I'm reading a book of sermons by Martin Lloyd-Jones entitled Spiritual Depression. Not because I'm depressed, at least not most of the time, um, but sometimes maybe. Uh, But because it really is famous and it's really helpful, and... um, I don't know if you know his story. He was a doctor in London in between World War I and World War II who was converted, and he left his practice and became a preacher. But he never quite really left behind um, his medical background. And so in these sermons, he is laboring like a doctor would, to, and he's actually his nickname was the doctor. He's laboring to prescribe gospel remedies and medications for a spiritual disease that nearly all of us struggle with at one point or another, what he calls spiritual depression, or the unhappy Christian. And what's interesting about his approach to the problem is this, is that he believed that the way to to affect change in the heart was through the understanding. He said, you don't, you shouldn't deal directly with a person's will or with a person's emotions. You have to first get them thinking right, and then uh, the heart and the will 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 inevitably follow. So spiritual depression, now not 
real depression, not clinical depression. Those things are, that's something completely different that's not within the scope of our conversation this morning. But what we're talking, garden variety grumpiness or irritability or a lack of energy or want to towards obedience. That's, that's what he means by that. He said it's a theological problem, that what the person needs who's suffering from this malady is truth. They need theology. And that's what we've been laboring to provide in this sermon series on these minor prophets because it is what the prophets themselves are laboring to provide to the people that they're ministering to as well. We need a theology that's strong enough to motivate us to obedience, even in really hard times. And this morning we come to the prophet Micah. I have a nephew named Micah, and so this is a fun uh, book to look at. I don't know that he even knows what his name means, but Micah's name means, Who is like the Lord? And that's also the message of his prophecy, that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is so unlike, so uniquely beautiful, so unlike any other God, any other person that we've ever known, that we should stand in awe of him. Who is like the Lord, Micah says. Verse 18 of chapter 7, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquities and passes over transgressions? The answer is nobody. Nobody does that. But our God does. And that's the message Micah's trying to get across to us. If I could put it this way, then in order to survive the hard times, like exile, remember this is written to a people going into exile, in order to survive those hard times, it's not enough to know God, you have to be fascinated by him. That's the only way to get through. You have to stand in awe of him and the way he does things. He's got to be beautiful to you. And so that's my goal this morning, to so preach that he becomes beautiful to you and to me so that it can carry us through whatever hardship we're having to endure. He, he is. He, he is beautiful to me, and particularly so uh, what we learn about him this morning, and that is that he is a God who is humble. Now, when we think of God's attributes, we think of things like omniscience or omnipotence or even his patience or his grace, but we hardly ever use the word humble to describe him. The systematic theologies and the creeds and the catechisms of our church don't. But what's interesting is the Bible does. And so this morning we want to look at this attribute when we say God is humble. Okay? And here are the three things we want to talk about this morning. I want to just show you from this text and from other places in the scripture that indeed God is humble. Secondly, if God is humble, then that means that the way you become a Christian is through humility. That in order to come to him, you have to first be humbled by his grace. He is close uh, to the contrite in heart, the scripture says. He comes to those who are broken in spirit. And so to know him, to become a Christian, you have to first be humbled by his grace. And then lastly, if God is humbled, and if you have to become a Christian through humility, then the way you live your life all throughout your life, if you call yourself a Christian, is also through humility, that Christians should be characterized by humility. And so those are our three points this morning. That God is humble, that we become Christians only through humility, and that because of that, then we must live our lives, all of our lives, uh, characterized by this, by this trait of humility. So let's just walk through this. These, uh, these verses together this morning in the, under those three headings, if you would. First, let's see. I want to show you, because we might need to prove this a little bit, that God is indeed humble. And we don't think of him as such, but he is. And probably the reason we have such a hard time thinking of God this way is because he is everywhere doing quite the opposite. He's putting his power on display, he's splitting the Red Sea in two, and he's, he's destroying armies while barely lifting a finger. And even the ways that he's represented in the... The the images in which the scripture represents him, like smoke and fire and lightning and thunder, are things that strike fear 
into our hearts. But please remember, please remember that the Apostle Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, is the image of the invisible God. And the writer of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, says that he is the exact imprint of his nature and the radiance of his glory. And what all of those scripture passages mean to teach us is that what Jesus is, God the Father is. And all that God the Father is, he is. There's a direct correspondence. Jesus and the Father, though unique persons in the Trinitarian God that Christians believe, yet one God. And there it is in plain English for us in our call to worship this morning that Jonathan read a little while ago. Come to me, all you who are weary or who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then there you see it. For I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus is gentle with us like a shepherd with his lambs. And therefore God the Father is too. Jesus is humble in heart, we're told there. And so must God the Father be also. And the reason, the reason this is such a hard concept for us to grasp, I really think, has to do with our own idea about what God should be like. And to be blunt with you this morning, humility is so off-putting to us that we imagine if we had the choice to live without it, we would, of course, do so. We have the same problem with God that the lead character in Jan Martel's Life of Pi did at first, if you remember the story, if you saw the movie. The young boy reared in India among the folklore of Hindu gods strikes up a friendship with a Catholic priest who begins to tell him about Jesus, and he can't accept what the priest tells him at first, and so he goes back to his Hinduism saying, and here's his words, this is God as God should be with shine and power and might such as can rescue and save and put down evil, and that's how we like God, too, with shine and power and might. And the reason we prefer God this way is because we desire it for ourselves. What the Bible teaches when it talks about sin is that we would be God. And in reality, that's the reason for all the problems in our world. It's the reason things are so messed up. Human pride, what the Bible calls sin. And so the lesson of the gospel is that we would be God, but God would be us. We would rise up. To satisfy our pride, he comes down in humility to undo it. And we see this in this famous passage in chapter 5 of Micah here. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, the prophet writes, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me the one who is to be the ruler in Israel. And this, of course, is a prophecy of the Messiah. The long-awaited king of Israel. And the Gospels reveal him as Jesus of Nazareth. Born in Bethlehem because of the Roman census of Caesar Augustus. And what this passage teaches here in Micah, and also the way that it's used in the New Testament scriptures, in the Gospel of Matthew particularly, is that the whole way of God's coming into the world in Jesus Christ is characterized by humility. Let me explain that that he came at all shows us humility. If you take C.S. Lewis's definition of humility as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, humility is not thinking about yourself. It's not making yourself a big deal. And that's exactly what we read in Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, that though he was God, remember this passage, he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself and became a servant. And that phrase that he emptied himself has puzzled scholars and theologians for centuries. But I like B.B. Warfield's explanation best that 
it means that he emptied himself of all self. Now stop and think about that for just a minute. In the incarnation, Jesus, very God of very God, made himself not the big deal. He became a servant to love us. Who is like the Lord? But the how of his coming also shows his humility because when he came, he chose an out-of-the-way place, a backwater town, Bethlehem. The, 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 the prophet says, too little to be among the clans of Judah. And Matthew quotes from this passage in, in his gospel, in the story of the three magi, maybe if you're familiar with the Christian scriptures, you remember these guys, these three wise men who studied the sky and saw a new star that signaled the birth of the king, the Messiah. And so these men journey from the east and they come Uh, to find this child king. And when they come into the land of Israel, Matthew says that they went immediately to Jerusalem. But why Jerusalem? And it must be that because these men have certain ideas about the way the world works, and so they come first to the capital city because according to all human wisdom, the king should be born in the capital, but not this king. He is different. He is humble. He was born in a stable, not in a palace. He was welcomed into the world by a band of social outcasts, not the social elites. He was greeted on his first breath by the stench of manure and the sound of cattle, not the ooze and the ahs of the adoring public. Who is like the Lord? But not just that he came, and not even just how he came, show his humility, but also why he came. And we're told that the wise men bring gifts for this newborn king, gold symbolizing royalty and frankincense symbolizing divinity, but also myrrh because the smell of death was upon him from his very first breath. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 again says that though he was God, he emptied himself and became nothing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient all the way to the cross. The Jews, see, expected their Messiah King would come and gain a throne and through that throne would rescue them from their political and military enemies. But Jesus did not come to earth to gain a throne. No, no, Jesus came to earth leaving his throne. He did not come for glory or fame or power or wealth. He left all of those things behind. He stripped himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his power. He gave away his wealth. He did not come to gain a throne. No, he gave up his throne and took instead a cross to suffer and die for our sins. Who is like the Lord? So we see God is indeed humble. And here's what that means. If, If God is humble, then the only way to become a Christian is through humility. If everything in the world that is bad is due to pride, then the downward mobility of God in the gospel is his counter move to sin and human rebellion. C.S. Lewis in his chapter on pride and mere Christianity, which I, you know, I can't recommend highly enough to you, uh, and really particularly that chapter in that book, he said that if religion makes you feel like you're a good person or that you're better than other people, that is, if, you, if it makes you proud, if whatever you claim to believe, so if you're here, if it's, you know, you grew up in the church, or, or if you just grew up kind of as a, you know, in a, a real fuzzy way, just a, a religious person, if your religion, whatever it might be, if it makes you proud, to use C.S. Lewis's words, you can be sure that you're being acted on not by God, but by the devil. 
But the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object, though it's better to just forget about yourself. Now, he goes on to say that the devil's greatest work in our lives is to make us moral and religious, but still proud. He's got us there. Because if you're moral or good, it's too easy to convince yourself that you're a Christian when, in fact, if there's pride, if there's pride, you should have questions. I mean, the only way to become a Christian is through humility. If there's not humility, then no matter what else there might be, you're not there yet. If there's not humility, no matter what else there might be, you're not there yet. And I sincerely wish that I could say it better than C.S. Lewis, but I can't, so I won't try. And so this is his rationale. He says that it's impossible for a proud person to know God because proud people are always looking down on things and on other people. And of course, if all you ever do is look down, then the one thing you can't see is what's above you. That's the problem. In order to become a Christian, you have to look up. That's what faith is. Faith is looking up to God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And conversion, then, is the time in your life when you stop looking down And you start looking up. You become a Christian when you realize that in God you've come up against something that is in every respect immeasurably superior to you and that produces humility. And so Lewis would say, and I think this text teaches and I would say, that you can't be a Christian without humility because you can't be a Christian unless you stop looking down and you start looking up. And in many ways... This is an autobiographical sermon this morning. This is my own story. I am the firstborn of two firstborns in ambitious, so they tell me, from the womb. I was raised in the church. I was the star pupil in Sunday school class. I was a leader in the youth group. I've always been the good kid, staying out of trouble when all of my friends were getting into it. I've been a success at everything I've ever tried to do. A good student, most of the times a fairly good friend, a leader in the church and in the community, and terribly, terribly proud. I didn't even realize it until I'd been in ministry for some time, and it began to dawn on me that I, I, uh, well, it didn't dawn on me, it just kind of came crashing in on me that I was, after all this time of doing God's work, so to speak, I was miserable, I was angry, I was mean, and I was surrounded by other mean people. I was miserable, everybody else I was pastoring was miserable too, and together we were trying to do church, and it was absolutely dysfunctional. And I hated it. And they hated it, and I broke. And I began to look at my life and see what a mess it was. And I don't know, you know, I don't know if it was a conversion experience, but I quit my job as a pastor and started going to to church in Lakeland, which actually planted this church, Trinity Presbyterian, our mother church. And it was as if someone put their hand underneath my chin, almost on my first Sunday there. The experience of being there was as if somebody put their hand underneath my chin and forced me to look up. And it changed me. And the question is, for all of us, the question is, how does God accomplish this work in our lives? I mean, how does he get us? If, by, if naturally we are bent to be constantly looking down, if our head seems to be hinged this way but not this way, then how is it that he gets us to stop looking down and start looking up? It's not always exactly the same answer, But it's something like this, that he takes us through some kind of suffering that reveals our weakness and his grace. And so the only recipe, the only recipe for humility is suffering 
that produces weakness plus grace. And you see this in the text in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 5 where the prophet speaks God's word warning the people. You see there, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off your cities and throw down your strongholds. I will cut off your carved images, your pillars. I will root out your Asherah images. All of that's from the verses that I didn't print there for you. Now, what is all of that? The Lord is saying, I'm going to work in your life to thwart you and take away the things that make you feel strong and secure. Horses and chariots and and strongholds, all of these military resources that the Lord is alluding to here. God is saying, I'm going to take those things away. I'm going to make you weak because it's the only way I can get you to look up. And for me, it was the moment 10 years into ministry when I came to realize just how angry I was, what a mess I was, and what a mess I'd made. Despite all of my gifts and my abilities, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it is in your life. Maybe it's physical or emotional weakness or time of moral failure or whatever it might be. But the recipe for humility is suffering that produces weakness and then grace. God has to first take away our strength before we can come to know his grace because we are conditioned to think that what he demands from us is our strength. Did you hear that? God has to work. To first take away our strength because we are so conditioned to think that what he demands, what he wants from us as his people, what he really desires of us is our strength. And this is the dilemma Micah's wrestling through himself. In chapter 6, with what shall I come before the Lord, he says. You see that? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Will, um, with 10,000 rivers of oil, shall I give my firstborn son for my transgression? That's religion. God wants my strength. He wants my devotion. He wants my commitment. He wants my generosity. He loves and accepts the strong and the weak and the committed. He wants me to do good. That's what he, that's what, you know, that's what he wants. And that was me all of those years. I was coming before the Lord with my moral record, my Sunday school attendance, my, my achievements at school and in the community. Here, God, look, aren't you happy with me? But it was all about me, my ministry, my gifts, my sacrifices, my moral records. And that's why there was no humility. There's only one way to become a Christian. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I mean, please, listen, let me help. The only way to become a Christian is to realize that what God requires of you is not your strength, but your need. We sang the song, didn't we? All the fitness he requires is what? To feel your need of him. All you need is need. And what Micah 6 teaches is burnt offerings won't do. Thousands of rams won't do. 10,000 rivers of oil won't do. Missionary service won't do. Well-behaved children's won't, children won't do. Business success won't do. Leadership in the church won't do. You can't do it. God must do it. Salvation is by grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is what he does for us, not what we do for him. And if you believe that Christianity is what you do for God, then you'll go through life looking down on everybody who's not as good and as moral as you are. But if you come to see that it is not what you do for him, but what he has done for you in Jesus Christ, when God's grace, by God's grace, when you come to the point of weakness and you finally wake up to the truth that you can't do it on your own and you cry out for help, you look up. Well, once you look up, you'll never look down on anybody else ever again. See, God is humble. 
And therefore, the only way to become a Christian is through humility. And the reason I spent so much time on that is because there are so many moral, arrogant people in the church that call themselves Christians that my personal opinion is they should maybe think twice about that. Moral, arrogant people smell like smoke and come from the pit of hell. The dominant feature of sin is pride. And therefore, the dominant characteristic of a Christian is a person who has been humbled, a person who has experienced suffering, God thwarting, that's produced weakness, and then there's been grace. And if you've been humbled by grace, then that's the kind of thing I'm describing this morning. But if you've not been humbled by grace, you may be religious, but you're not a Christian yet. So follow the logic. If the only way to become a Christian is through humility, then our lives should, all of our lives, should be characterized by that very same humility. That our life trajectory should be the same as his, who was God, yet emptied himself and became nothing, becoming a servant, being obedient even to death on the cross. The Apostle Paul starts that beautiful Christ hymn there in Philippians 2 with the words, Have the mind of Christ among you. Be like him who did not consider equality with God and so forth. And so he has an expectation that we would follow him in his downward mobility, in the movement of humility into the world to save us from our sins. And to expound on this, we come to the most famous verse in the book of Micah, Micah 6.8. And I'm going to finish here. There the prophet says, Well, what shall I come before the Lord? And he says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And let me make just three applications very quickly, and then I'm really going to be done. So three applications this morning from this text. First, let's go in reverse order from the three things. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. Let's go, let's go backwards in reverse order. And let's, let's just say this. Application number one, walking humbly means that you acknowledge that God works through weak people in small places in ordinary ways. See, if, God, if when God came into the world, he came as a child born in an out-of-the-way place and no one even noticed, if that's the way he set out to save the world, then it makes sense to say that he still works to this day through small, little people in small places in ordinary ways. And so the aim of our lives, if I could just be an encouragement, the aim of our lives should not be to try to be important. We should just be trying to be faithful. That's walking humbly. Don't be full of self-importance, but don't underestimate yourself either in your role and your calling. Just be faithful. God works through weak people in small places, in ordinary ways. He works through tired mamas at 2 a.m. changing diapers. He works through 7th grade math teachers in 3rd period who ask the kid who got an F on the test if there's something wrong at home. Whatever you're doing, it matters. Whoever you are, you matter. Whatever your age, you matter. So don't try to hit a home run every time, a single, or what baseball players call a good at bat. You know that analogy? That was a good at bat. It means, ah, the outcome wasn't really great, but you did what you were supposed to do. You helped the team. Right? Just have a good at bat. Stop trying to hit home runs. Have good at bats. Humility realizes that not the Kodak moments, 
But the small, ordinary, everyday times when the cameras aren't rolling are the things that matter the most. And it enters all of those moments with as much expectancy and purpose as it can muster. Walk humbly, he says. Don't always be trying to do great things for God. Just show up. Show up and serve. In the great divorce, uh, to refer to C.S. Lewis yet again, the narrator who has been given a tour, is being given a tour of heaven tells about a, a scene of parade. Uh, and it's all in honor of this woman who is just blindingly and unbearably beautiful. And, uh, and the narrator wonders who she is. And when he asks, the guide's answer is this. He says, it's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. And the narrator replies, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. And then the guide says, ah, yes, she's one of the great ones. But don't forget... I hope you've heard that the fame that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. See, walking humbly means being content to live a small life, to be unknown, to just do what's right in front of you because it's what God's put on your plate, to get to know your neighbors, to be someone who no one else has ever heard of because the great ones in heaven who accomplish great things on earth are those who don't have a very high opinion of themselves or their work. They're just faithful. Application number two, walking humbly then, we've said, walking humbly means you acknowledge that God works through weak people in small places in ordinary ways. Application number two, loving kindness, he also calls us to. The second thing is to love kindness. And loving kindness means that you make the flourishing of others the aim of your life. And the word there is hesed. It's this word we've talked about over and over again in this church. Steadfast love, one-way love, a whole orientation of life that puts the needs of the other person ahead of your own. Kindness makes the other person the big deal. It is there for them. Kindness gives people what they need, not what they want. It's completely free of any self-concern. That is to say, it's humble. And I love the imagery in chapter 4. It's why I included it. It really is a, a kind of side point, but it's such beautiful, it's such beautiful things, and it fills my heart with such joy and hope and beauty in chapter 4, where he talks about people coming to the mountain of the Lord, and the result of their knowing the Lord in verse 3 is that, is that the Lord will judge between the peoples, and he will decide for strong nations far away, and they will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, and every time they sing the line at the end of Les Mis, I literally get chills all over every square inch of my body. So there's, there's your Les Mis quote. Whoever told me last week, I thought you were going to go to Les Mis. I didn't last week, but there it is this week. They will beat, they will beat their plowshares into, they'll beat their, their swords into plowshares. And I love it. I love the imagery because it says, in the kingdom of heaven, all of our hostility toward one another can be overcome. He says, they will learn war no more. That the way of the kingdom, the way of the kingdom is to take your sword and your spear, the instruments of war, and to turn them into the instruments of farming and cultivating. That, that what, what we do, when God comes to us and by the power of his spirit, he begins to shape us in the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we no longer take swords in our hands to beat one another up. Rather, instead of beating one another, we begin to build one another up through kindness. And don't underestimate the opportunity in small moments of what you can be and do for a person if you move towards them in kindness. Kindness makes the flourishing of the other person the goal. So we are to walk humbly, knowing that God works through, through small people in small places in ordinary circumstances to love kindness, which means that the whole movement of our life should be toward the flourishing of others, 
not just selfishly being concerned with ourselves. But then lastly, doing justice. You see that? And doing justice just means that you side with the weak against the strong. To do justice means to fix brokenness for the weak and the poor and the needy. So to walk humbly means you walk with the humbled. And you, I mean, this, is, this makes sense, right? People who've, been, people who've been humble, people who are struggling, naturally gravitate towards humble people. So if you're humble, if you're gentle, be ready. You're going to have a ministry to the needy. But it's much more than that, I think. What the prophet's calling us to here is to aim our lives at the weak and the poor and the broken and the needy because they are of special concern to God. He is humble, and so he walks with the needy. See, humility, humility really should be our defining characteristic. And humility means an absence of any air of self-importance. It's other-centered. It's hospitable to people who are struggling. Oh, that's my hope. That's my prayer. That's the work of God. I pray that he does in me and in my family and in our church. And I really think it's the very thing he intends to do in us. And so, just to close, if you're here this morning and you've been caught in your pride and the sermon calls you to repentance, consider this. The scripture says, God opposes the proud. Which means that if you're proud... God's way of loving you is to not let you to continue in your pride because it's the thing that's destroying your life. And so here's what he will do. He will begin to thwart you. He'll begin to take away the things that make you proud. But let me be your friend and say, when God begins to oppose you, don't oppose him. Rejoice. But if you're here this morning and you've been humbled and this sermon calls you to faith, I mean, you're... You're the, uh, you're, you're the opposite of all that I've been talking about. Consider this. Psalm 3410 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Come to him. All you who are weary and heavy laden by the weight of your own expectations, by the shame of your failure, by the sadness of your own brokenness, come to him. For he is gentle and humble in heart. And you can find rest for your souls. Let's pray together this morning, can we? Lord Jesus, we we indeed marvel at all of the things that you could have chosen to be true of yourself. You could have come like all the other gods and the mythologies that we have come. When they come, they come with power and might. And yet when you came, you came as a child in an out-of-the-way city with no one paying any attention because you are humble of heart. And we know that all of the problems in our world stem from the moment in a garden where the first man, representative of every single one of us in this room, said with his lips the very things that we would say in our hearts over and over and over again to you, not your will but mine be done. And so we know that the only way that sin could be overcome is for another man to come and in a garden to... Pray the very opposite of that prayer to say to you, not my will, but yours be done. And Lord Jesus, in your great humility and self-sacrifice, you have reversed all of the effects of the sin, uh, of the fall and of death, and you are making all things new, and you intend to start that great work with us. And so we pray this morning that you would come and put your hands on us and go to work on us. We gear ourselves up in expectation for what that means because we know that it means that you intend to make us humble and we know that's a painful journey. And so give us great grace and great faith 
to open our lives to you, to not oppose you when you begin to oppose us, but to say, please come and save me from the thing that's killing me. Even though it may feel like you're ripping my flesh from my body, come and do that work because it's good. And so, Lord Jesus, thank you that we can trust you, that we can put our lives in your hands because, indeed, you are gentle and lowly in heart and you love us. You're a good and faithful shepherd. And so, good shepherd, come. We are the sheep. Shepherd us and turn us into people that can honor and glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know uh, about you, but I came this morning uh, out of a really hard week, a place of uh, real uh, pain and um, struggle with my own brokenness and my need uh, for God to come and do a work. And so the words of Isaiah 66 this morning, I take great comfort in them. Here's what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me and where is the place that, that I may rest? All of these things my hand has made and so all of these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And so this morning, if like me, uh, you're overwhelmed with a sense of your own need, uh, good news, that is the person the Lord looks upon. And that's the promise of this benediction. And so receive it this morning. Come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and find rest in these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.